part of me wants to say, you may be seated. (laughs) Just for a sense of normalcy. Or, I should say, stand for the reading of the gospel, please. We'll see how many of you do that. Let's hear our scripture from Mark 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you may be seated. Let's pray together. Word of God, come among us and wake us up. Word of God, be born in us and make your home here. Surprise us with what we hear emerging, not from a preacher, but from your spirit that abides deep within us. Amen. I'm curious how many of you are in a season where you're constantly asking, what world are we living in? I actually thought it moments ago, sitting over here at this chair, we were about to begin, and everyone's standing ready, because that's what we do now before worship begins. We're not chatting with you, we're, we're standing here ready for TV production to begin. It still is weird right? Like, what world are we living in? Some of you might want me to say before I begin, our children are dismissed to continue their worship. The fact that we don't say that anymore, uh, what world are we living in? Some of you probably wanted to hear it right now. We're seeking safety and stability more than ever with so much things that have changed. So how exactly are we going to actually talk about this gospel lesson that I read? Carlisle Marney, one of my favorite Baptist theologians who I quote all the time, writes this. Messiahs ought not to be so unpredictable. It's acutely disconcerting with Messiahs not to be able to expect according to a schedule of times and seasons. Who knows in advance which hymn or set of eyes or touch or prayer will bear some new word of command from Messiah? A man has to be braced for this. It's like living in fear of sharp corners lest you meet someone coming breakneck on a bicycle. So much better, we say, if we could have kept him in the grave or on the cross or at least in the church where we could sin for him when we want him, or modestly enough, if we could just keep him in the supper's bread and wine, wrapped in napkin and chalice, lest he get loose in the town and choke us all with his demands on the neighbor. 
what it's like to live with a Messiah who might come at any moment. Just when we feel like we've had enough surprises for a lifetime, we encounter again an abrupt Messiah, disrupting our plans, our day's plans with time being fulfilled. A new world, a new dimension of reality, the kingdom of God coming near. And then asking us to do what most of us are terrible at doing, which is drop everything you've planned, dropped everything you're doing, and cancel your soul insurance plan. And don't act like you don't have one. We all do. It's our own little personal concoction of whatever voices and powers and practices that we hope are going to save us just in case God doesn't show up in time or in ways that we wanted. These soul insurance plans, which in another word is idolatry if you want to know, show up even more in really stressful times. Remember the golden calf in the wilderness? If there's anything that we've learned from these four years, these past four years, is that we should never assume ourselves to be too advanced to make the mistakes that other people made in the past. Soul insurance plans are the things in our life that somehow move from, these are a few of my favorite things, to, tis so sweet to trust in Brene Brown. Tis so sweet to trust in Steve Inskeep and Rachel Martin every morning. So just when we're about to cast Brene in gold, here comes Jesus saying, drop everything, love God's creation without expecting it to rescue you, and live confidently in a world that's on its way, arrival TBD. You teachers, leave your Google Meets. You chaplains, drop your badges. You social workers, abandon all your notes with glee. You retired folk, cancel your plans and come over here with this stranger with big promises whose baptizer was just arrested, by the way. We're seeking safety and stability, a future we could feel free to breathe within and we could take deep breaths. We're looking for a year that's shockingly uneventful and not history-making and boring. Is anyone ready for news to be boring? And you want us to fish for people? I learned this week that fishing for people is a much more violent image than I had ever understood. Because fish don't want to be caught. That's not good news for a fish. It's an image that's used um, in scripture of judgment. Amos 4.2 says, The Lord God has sworn by God's holiness, the time is surely coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Habakkuk 1, 13 to 14, you have made people like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. The enemy brings them all up with a hook. We're seeking safety and stability, integrity and maturity, moral accountability and justice in a weary world. And we've seen the footage from the Senate floor on January 6th where white Christians invoked Jesus' name to justify anarchy, violence, and conspiracy theories. So how are we going to keep acting and praying in Jesus' name? What world are we living in? 
Richard Rohr writes in his thought-provoking book, The Universal Christ, this quote comes from a chapter, I think it says something like, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's impossible to make individuals feel sacred inside of a profane, empty, or accidental universe. It's impossible to feel sacred in the midst of a profane, empty, or accidental universe. What world are we living in? Dr. Colin Miller, a professor of mine from Duke, told us that our job as clergy was to help re-enchant the world. He said most of us live in a disenchanted world, and it appears theologically in different ways. Some people live as if God set the world in motion and then walked away. And so we float through life without meaning or connection or having to come up with our own why. Some people live as if God is competing with creation. So we work to stay on God's good side, lest God's anger be kindled against us. And some people live as if God is domesticated by our actions and our words and our brilliance. And so we look to one another to be God for us since we gave up on God really doing God's part. What world are we living in? My professor challenged us to go out and preach, teach, and live that as if God is present here and we're dancing with God's glory and we're participating in God's reality all while grasping what we cannot understand and in the process we're making the world believable again. But before we blindly say, that sounds wonderful, and that's good. Thank you, Carol. Let's ask, how did it work in Jesus' lifetime? Because not all people found Jesus' good news to be good news. Religious leaders liked their domesticated God. This prophet who is abruptly disrupting the world was not a threat, was a threat and not a gift. And not all people found Jesus' good news to be good enough news. They wanted the human condition solved. The systemic institution of Roman rule to be overthrown. A fully human savior who dies in front of them is not what they had in mind. Richard Rohr continues to say, Jesus is the archetypal human, just like us, who showed us what the full human might look like if we could really live into it. Frankly, Jesus came to show us how to be human much more than how to be spiritual. And the process still seems to be in its early stages. How to be human more than just how to be spiritual. Roar's words turned me around this week, letting me ask a question of Mark 1 that I had not asked before, which is, what does this text reveal to us about how to be human? What Jesus invites us into is not just new and not just spiritual, Because Jesus isn't introducing a concept to us. Jesus is revealing to us what is already true. That we as human beings live in worlds. 
We live in kingdoms. We live in kinships. We do not exist in a vacuum waking every day to a blank page. Our lives don't exist independently in name and in time and in space. The world's kingdoms, kinships, nations, tribes we exist in explain and reveal to us a meaning and a story for our name and our time and our space. Jesus uses the language of kingdoms because that was the language of his time. Let us remember, Jesus was a particular person living in a particular place in a particular time who reveals a universal, timeless, boundless God. And so we can continue to use kingdom of God language, but we don't have to be confined by it. We can speak of God's dream, God's mission, God's network, whatever word you want to choose. You often hear from this pulpit the term kingdom of God. I assume you've noticed. A term that Ada Maria Asia Diaz, the mother of Muharista theology, shared to emphasize God's interconnected community of kinship, of family, rather than to employ the language of kings that have such violent and malevolent realities. No matter what the term we want to use, let's be clear that Jesus doesn't introduce the idea of living in a kingdom or a kinship or a world. We already, with or without conscious attachment, exist in tribes and people groups and formative narratives. And in the same way, we're followers already. The call to follow is not introduced by Jesus like this is a new concept. Instead, Jesus' invitation is to look up and see who you're following Jesus' invitation is to rethink who it is that you have chosen to lead you. So to ask, what world are we living in, is to ask, what worldview am I declaring as true as gospel? What kingdom am I participating in? What narrative am I perpetuating, which is shaping the words I speak right now, the actions I take or don't take, and the relationships I pursue. We remembered our baptism two Sundays ago, that moment when we choose our primary life-defining kingdom, kinship, Lord. And you may have only gotten into those waters once, but metaphorically, you had already been baptized into a kingdom where you had pronounced a Lord. You were born in that kingdom and that tribe and that kinship with its own lords. It was just a given that you were a member of it. It didn't invite you consciously to join. You may have been born a Kentuckian with leaders who govern your life. You were born into a family with grandparents or parents who shaped and governed your life. You were born into a race, most of you white, And there are lords that reign in the white kingdom as we are coming to see. We are fish who haven't realized that we're swimming in water and in what direction, and we're just headed where the current flows. Until we see Simon and Andrew's nets and we're caught. 
Jesus came to show us how to be human much more than how to be spiritual. Kingdom living is not a specific Jesus thing. It's a human thing. It's asking us, though, what kingdom are we living in? God's world comes upon us, interrupting our well-ordered but unsatisfied lives. And what if the genius of God's action on earth in the body of Christ is that God knows that we need abrupt wake-up calls to rescue us from the worlds we're living in unaware? We need interrupting. We need interrupting to show us that we have agency and we have a choice. Divine interrupting helps us to realize the stream we're living in, where we're headed, and to know that there might be another way. This judgment that God brings, that we're always so scared about, what if the judgment is for any kingdom kinship worldview that is treating you as anything less than God's beautiful creation. Repentance is turning to Christ who is here to love us back to life in another kingdom, in another kinship, another world. We've been floating downstream thinking ourselves to be fish when surprise, surprise, we're human beings created for kinship and freedom and good news. What world are we living in? I close with a blessing. I hope you're enjoying all of these beautiful blessings that are going out by email. So I close with a blessing for divine interruptions, inspired by, inspired by Carlisle Marnie's warning of messiahs coming around the corner at any moment. You pedal at breakneck pace, hoping your bicycle might just take flight as you flee all that chases after you. Little do you know that God's world is coming quick around the turn. You round the corner and fall to the ground, disoriented and thwarted in your escape plan. Lift your eyes, O panicked one. And take the hand outstretched before you. Find his gaze tender and full of compassion. Stand back up and dust off your limbs. No more need for the two wheels and the handlebar. No more danger at your heels. Follow me comes the voice of the stranger who sounds like an old friend. This is a voice that echoes home. His are the eyes that cause the light to flood the corner. O divine interruption that meets us at sharp turns. I agree. The time is fulfilled. This is God's world we're living in. Amen.